Uh, I want you to look again at Luke chapter 1, the verses that Pastor Nathan read this morning. Luke chapter 1. This is the song of Zacharias, we might say, beginning in verse 67. Also, it's been called the Benedictus in certain Christian circles. But he begins, or the text begins actually, by saying, And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied. Now, this doesn't strike us as one of the most uh, remarkable verses, but I would hasten to say that that is one of the most remarkable phrases that, the, that Luke has in this text. And what I mean by that is, is um, or to actually understand why it's so remarkable, we have to back up a little bit. Because preceding this prophecy from this aged priest named Zechariah, we have to understand kind of what led up to it, what preempted this prophecy. If you go back to verse 5 of the same chapter, we are introduced to these two individuals, Zacharias and Elizabeth. It says in verse 5, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abia. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, of the Lord, blameless. And they had no children, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. Well stricken in years is, of course, a King James euphemism for they were very old. <laughs> they had lived a very long, very faithful life in the service of Jehovah, serving him in the temple as was Zacharias's priestly duty. He had lived perhaps a hard life, a life that had perhaps been made even harder by the fact that they were, had no hope of bringing a family into the world, no hope of raising sons and daughters of their own. If you've been around those who have been stricken with the same sense of barrenness, you know how difficult that is to, uh, to live and watch and see those around you raise families of their own. And yet Zacharias and Elizabeth had to endure the same sorts of heartache. And yet what I find fascinating is the fact that Zacharias' resolve for the Lord is not deterred. Notice verse 8 as it says, And it came to pass... That while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, he is yet undeterred, sort of unhindered by this heartache, this hardship in this lot that he and his wife have been given. That they are, are not going to have the blessing of raising a son, of raising a daughter, yet doesn't disturb his faith. I no doubt uh, imagine that Zechariah had had hard seasons, had days of questioning the Lord's will in this regard. Lord, why won't you give me a son? In fact, it's not in the text. This is totally my own conjecture. But I imagine that Elizabeth and Zacharias, in their close proximity to the temple, we might imagine, they too had prayers like Hannah and 1 Samuel. That if you will only give me a son... <laughs> I imagine they were familiar with that passage, or perhaps they prayed similar prayers. But regardless, they executed their faith, as here Zechariah is executing the priest's office. And what do you know it? On this random day, in the midst of a random, uneventful year, an angel appears within Zechariah's presence. Notice again verse 8. And it came to pass... That while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, 
His lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And while the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the same time of incense, there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar. This angel, as we'll eventually get to know, is Gabriel, the archangel, the messenger of the Lord. And he comes bearing, as he says later, glad tidings. He comes bearing this message that, in fact, the barrenness of Elizabeth will be no more. And, in fact, Zacharias is about to be a father. Notice verse 12. And when Zacharias saw him, saw this angel, he was troubled. And fear fell upon him. And the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And of course he goes on to announce this incredible birth of the man John, the one we know as John the Baptist, the one that we can go to countless Old Testament scriptures and know that he has come to prepare the way of the Lord. The voice that cries out in the wilderness is this voice of John. And I can't imagine Zacharias' mind in this moment. <laughs> Again, Put yourself in this priest's shoes. He's conducting his normal duties in the church, burning incense as was his lot. He is separated from the multitude. They are unable to see him and he is visited by an angel. An angel who tells him that all of those long years of depression and despair over the fact that he is not going to have a son, he is not going to have an heir, he is not going to pass on his legacy, all of those anguished moments are now at an end. And in fact, his wife will bear a son. And not just any son. Not just any Israelite boy. In fact, yes, he is ordinary, but he is also extraordinary in the fact that he has come to prepare the way for the one, the Messiah. This is a remarkable moment. It's reverberating with all kinds of Old Testament fulfillment. And in fact, Elizabeth and Zacharias are very good stand-ins, we might say, for Sarah and Abraham, who were similarly given the promise of a child in their later years, and they similarly didn't believe at first. And in fact, that's what Zacharias here does. Notice verse 17. The angel is speaking Gabriel, and he, and he says, And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias, or Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife well stricken in years. Now, of course, this seems like a logical question. This seems like a very normal thing to want to understand. And in fact, I sympathize so much with Zacharias in this moment. Given all of his history, given all of the things that he has perhaps been forced to endure, you can imagine his questioning, how is this possible? How is this going to be? And of course, the angel answers him, Gabriel, And he doesn't take too kindly to this word of Jehovah sort of being cross-examined. Notice, and the angel answering, verse 19, said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God. 
and am sent to speak unto thee and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them. And they perceived that he had, been a, had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. So he's rendered unable to speak because of, as the angel says, his unbelief. You didn't believe the words that I said. Humanly speaking, I sympathize with Zacharias. Nevertheless, this word comes from a messenger of Yahweh who, as he says, I stand in the presence of Yahweh even now to deliver you these words straight from Yahweh's mouth. These things, as Pastor Nathan alluded to as he read a moment ago, and uh, the verse that I think he was perhaps referencing was out of Galatians, that these times shall be fulfilled, Galatians 4, I think 1. According to the Lord's timing, these things are now coming about. And you can see and you can almost feel the whole cosmos trembling at this announcement. Nevertheless, Zacharias returns home in verse 23. And it came to pass, as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished, he departed to his own house. And after those days, what do you know? His wife Elizabeth conceived. And hid herself five months, saying, Thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. He returns home, and everything happens according to Gabriel's word, which is really God's word. Elizabeth conceives miraculously, yes. It doesn't actually at first make sense. But she conceives, and she is pregnant with this son who is going to be named John. And all the while, all the while, Zacharias is speechless. He cannot speak. He could perhaps open his mouth and he could try and talk, but no words would come out. Now, perhaps Elizabeth was thankful for this. I don't know. Maybe she was happy that she could spend nine months in silence. Not sure. Regardless, notice verse 57. We'll jump ahead in the text and Because now nine months have passed. Elizabeth is at full term. And it says now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered. And she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her. And they rejoiced with her. There is a, a legit festival we might say. A party happens at the house of Zacharias with great rejoicing and cheer because she has brought forth a son. But as good families do, they go around making some serious assumptions. And notice verse 9 and it says, and it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. So the son hasn't been named yet. It's the eighth day and he's about to be circumcised according to Jewish custom, according to Hebrew law. They're following all of the scriptures of the Lord here. And yet all of his family are making a very serious assumption. They're calling him Zacharias Jr. Of course, they're, uh, of course he's going to be named this. Now this doesn't strike us as uh, that odd or it shouldn't perhaps. 
Naming your son was a very sacred sort of event in these days. Family names were sacred commodities, we might even say. And the honor of passing on your name was almost akin to passing on yourself. You were passing on your essence. It's only natural that, that of course, the son would be Zacharias Jr. It just makes sense. This was not just a common thing. It was just a traditional thing. It was a well-practiced thing in this day and age. And I think such is what makes Zacharias and Elizabeth's resistance to this naming so startling. Notice verse 60. And his mother answered and said, not so. Nope, not going to be Zacharias Jr. He shall be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would have him called. And he asked for a writing table and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. (laughs) Which I think is putting it lightly that they were a little bit outraged. This was a very interesting moment in this house. They were resisting and we might say shunning social convention by saying that we're not going to abide by the common practices of naming here. They're almost, you could say, you can imagine these families and these cousins as they're getting together and they're seeing this take place. That these two are spitting on family tradition. How scandalous is this? They're not abiding by what we've always done. This wasn't normal. You could say that Elizabeth and Zacharias were the first hipsters. They were doing their own thing. They were not abiding by tradition and custom and social convention. Instead, we are abiding by something else. And it wasn't just their own made-up sense of what they wanted to name this boy. They were following God. You see, I think this is what makes this moment so uh, significant to us. In denying and resisting what was quote unquote socially acceptable, they were also following and demonstrating the fact that they were abiding by God's word above everything else. This naming is very significant. It shows us that Elizabeth and Zacharias, they believed we might say that they, they didn't have everything sort of figured out in their own minds. I would hasten to say that they couldn't connect all the dots. They couldn't make a very sort of explainable explanation for this. But nevertheless, they're saying, we believe in the Lord. We believe in what he is doing. Even if we can't explain it. Even if we can't put our finger on it. We are believing in this God of all things who is doing something in this moment. And what do you know? His voice comes back. Zechariah, the speechless priest, can now speak again. Look at verse 64. And his mouth was opened. Immediately his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. And fear came on all that dwelt around about them, and all these things were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And they all, and all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him, and his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied. You see, this is what makes this moment so amazing. 
Yes, his insistence on following God leads to the return of his voice and the naming of his son John, which is the first sort of moment in this, in this dawning of light that God is going to bring upon this world. But we have to pause and see again what makes this moment so significant. He is prophesying. We can't just pass over that word. We can't just glance over it and get to the rest of it, which is certainly full of amazing truths for us. But again, he is prophesying. He's not just talking. His mouth is filled with the words of God himself. This comes after 400 years of spiritual silence. Four centuries of nothing being told from prophets. It's a period of deafness, a period of silence. And yet into that silence comes this prophecy from the Lord through the lips of Zacharias. This, you see, is not just a spontaneous song that Zacharias comes up with. He's not just thinking of these things in the moment. This was an inspired anthem, as it says, that comes from the Holy Ghost. It comes from God himself to signal, to point us, to give us an inkling and a clue as to all that he is about to do. All that's about to be fulfilled. All that is now dawning on this world. Is give, we are given a glimpse of that here in the midst of this prophecy. Indeed, we, I think we can say that the song shows us what's at the heart of God himself. You want to know what is in the mind of God, and you want to know what he's all about, I think it's right here in these few verses. Notice verses 68 and 69, because as he begins, he, as he will do throughout this song, Zechariah draws on a number of Old Testament allusions and, and images in order to paint a picture of what this Messiah would do. Notice, blessed be God, he says, the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. I love how he begins the song because he is, of course, referencing the Messiah, that great figure of the faith of Israel. And he's referencing this man, the Messiah, in terms of something that's already been accomplished. You can notice that he says he's visited and redeemed as if it's already happened. He sings with the air of triumph, with the air of accomplishment. And just again, step back and think about what his song is based on. Verse 17, he's visited by an angel who no one else saw. He's the only one who heard this word from the angel in verses 40 and 41 and 42. Let me just read those verses. That's that moment where John leaps in Elizabeth's belly. Mary comes to visit. Mary, the cousin of Elizabeth. And it says, and she entered into the house of Zacharias and saluted Elizabeth. And it came to pass, verse 41, that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb. She knows, but no one else does. No one else feels the babe leap in her belly. And she's filled with a word which no one else hears. And and even then, we can go onward into what Mary sings about in verse 46. The magnificats of Mary, we might say. 
And imagine her story. Who's going to believe Mary's story? That she is with child of the Holy Spirit. She is not committed infidelity. She has been uh, conceived by the Holy Ghost. The one who has come to fulfill all these things. Everyone giving her a knowing look. Yeah, okay, Mary. You can see this is what Zacharias' song is based on. Not very provable things. Things that are barely believable, we might say. Except, of course, if God was involved. And, of course, we know that he was. All of this was God's doing. All of this was in keeping with his plan of redemption and his purpose of saving his people. And the faith of Zacharias here stands out to me. Because he sings as though these things are already fulfilled. Those prophecies that are nearly forgotten, that are distant memories for the people of Israel perhaps, are now being fulfilled in his moment, in his day. The Messiah had long been a focus of Israelite religion. We might even say that this was the very first sermon that even our first parents heard, Adam and Eve. From the beginning... This figure, this seed who would come and crush the serpent's head has long been the figure of meaning and hope and confidence for the people of God. And you can trace that term, the term the seed, all throughout the Old Testament and you'll see it referenced and referenced. It's the precious truth of God's people. They had longed for this day. The long hoped for Messiah was their sense of being. And prophets had long foretold of this one who would come. This one who would come to this earth on behalf of God's people and on behalf of God himself. And in fact, that's what Zechariah alludes to in verse 70 as he says, And he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began. This has long been the story of old. This valiant, mighty, heavenly king who would come and as he says, save us. That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. He would deliver us. He would release us from bondage. As the song says, ransom captive Israel and bring salvation to God's people. This is the promise of the Messiah. But even more... This Messiah would fulfill all of those old covenant promises. In verse 69 he alludes to that when he says that this one would come in the house of his servant David. Fulfilling all that was promised to David that a king would be given to him. That a king that would live forever have a reign of an everlasting kingdom. And of course... As he alludes to in verse 72 and onward, he is also fulfilling the promise made to Abraham. As he says, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he sware to our father Abraham. That he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. And holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. He's drawing on all of those storied, uh, timeless promises and truths of Hebrew religion. And saying, now they are being accomplished. Now the Son of Man is come. This Messiah is here. And as he says, he visited, visited us. Notice verse 78. 
Through the tender mercies of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. The same word that he used back in 68 is used verse here. This visitation. It's a visitation that's not just he's coming and hanging out. It's a visitation that implies action. He's coming to dwell and not just dwell but to deliver. Again, notice. It is because of this tender mercy of God. Whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. To give light to them that sit in darkness. And in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Day spring. Heaven's dawn. Is what that, ver- that term means. It's almost as if you could imagine. The first rays of sun that come and warm the earth. After a very long, very cold winter's night. And everything begins to melt. The frost begins to dissipate. And everything appears to have life again. So too is this what is happening in the heart of Zacharias. Light is now dawning and filling and warming his soul with the hope of heaven's light. All of these things are true and they are being fulfilled. All of those longings that we had for restoration and deliverance and salvation are now coming true. As Malachi says in Malachi 4 verse 2, uh, chapter 4 verse 2, the son of righteousness is now here. As Second Peter, uh, as Second Peter one nineteen alludes to, the morning star has now dawned. He is here. He has come to shine light, as he says in verse seventy nine, to them that sit in darkness. This, of course, is a direct reference to Isaiah and his prophecy. Actually, go with me there, Isaiah chapter nine. Notice. Notice how closely Zacharias has studied his, his Bible. He references Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse number 2. A very familiar Advent verse we might say. It says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. That they that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. And so it is here in this moment. The great darkness which had overshadowed God's people was about to be rendered back into the shadows by the great light of God's glory and grace himself. This heaven-sent rescuer was now here who had come bearing heaven's light. And the spread of that light as it extends to those who sit in darkness and as he says in the shadow of death. It's equivalent to the spread of redemption and the dissipation of righteousness to those that believe. And what's more, I think what's amazing is that this light is not partial. It's not subjective. It doesn't just shine on only those of a certain rank, of a certain class, of a certain nationality. This light is for everyone that sits in darkness. All those who believe. All those who realize their darkness are those upon whom this light has shined. And perhaps Zacharias didn't understand fully what that meant. Didn't fully comprehend the fact that this light would also be a light to the Gentiles. That this light that was coming would be a light for the whole world. 
But that's what his song conveys. It's the heart of God. This wide-ranging mercy of the Father that shuts no one out. As Jesus would say later in John chapter 6 verse 37, that he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. It happens because this light has dawned, this light has come. And he says in verse 78, it's all because of the tender mercy of our God. It's all because of the great one-way love of our Heavenly Father. But I think what's amazing about that term, this sending of the Messiah, out of this tender mercy of God, is an expression of his heart. It's indicative of a mercy that comes from the good Bible word, the bowels of God's heart. It comes from the deepest recesses of who he is. The deepest part of his nature is this mercy that springs forth. To which we could say that the deeper you go into the heart of God, the more mercy you're going to find that is ready to burst forth at the slightest pinprick. And here it's coming out. Here it's bursting forth onto this world. Can you see how momentous this moment is. You can see and feel in Zechariah's. He's almost quaking with this trembling feeling of faith. As he is here speaking. And he's not just speaking. He's prophesying the heart of God. To redeem the world and remake it. After four centuries of silence. With seemingly no sign, with seemingly no indication that the Messiah's coming was any nearer. Prior to this moment, what did they have to go on? There is seemingly no indication that the Messiah's coming is any closer. Any closer than it was before. Millennia have passed since the first promise of this one. Age after age had gone by and they had put their trust in in this promise with seemingly nothing to show for it. With no actual fulfillment and yet right now it is being fulfilled. You can sense this moment in Zacharias. You can sense it in his voice and to stop and think. Zechariah sees this fulfillment in the mere announcement of the Messiah's birth. That's what he's pinning his faith on. That's what he's pinning his entire being on. He pins his hope and his life on an unborn baby. Who he has been told. He has been inferring this is the Messiah. He's singing. He's praising the accomplishment of thousands of years of hope and desperation that will now lead to the deliverance of God's people. And he's singing as though all of that is true. Meanwhile, Jesus is but an embryo in his mother's belly. He's singing that all things are coming true. Meanwhile, the Savior is developing head, shoulders, knees, and toes inside of his mom. This accomplishment is coming at the fact, at the announcement of a newborn baby. I cannot escape from thinking about that and thinking about what is currently happening in our country. 
And what I mean by that is a few days ago, in the highest judicial branch in this United States, there began opening arguments on perhaps a topic we've not thought about in a while, the sanctity of human life. Of course, this case, Dobbs versus Jackson, is one that I would say has, it is a very indeed a powder keg of emotion. Political, social, ethical, and spiritual tension are now boiled up in that courtroom with many on both sides of the argument making their case. Some seeing this as having the potential to harm women's rights over their bodies, depending on the outcome. Others see this case as having the potential to overturn previous court rulings, which would have, uh, that have allowed for the mass genocide of human life for decades, which I think is easily the worst blemish on this nation's history. And I pray for God's truth to prevail, and I cannot help but think, That each time we see an unborn baby, we ought to remember Zacharias, who pinned his hope on just that, a defenseless infant. Those who are entirely dependent on someone else coming to their aid, entirely dependent on someone else sustaining their very existence, on coming to their defense. And think about that. That is exactly the position that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ took. We know from Philippians 2 verse 7 that it says that he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant. But think about this. He made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a defenseless newborn whose livelihood depended on his mother's nurturing. Whose very existence depended on his mother. He came And enter this world. A wailing newborn defenseless baby. Each time we see a newborn child. We can sing like Zacharias. That that's what our savior did. That's what our God did. He came in flesh. Flesh robed deity. The infinite, infant God was there lying in that manger. And yes, even here, that infinite, infant God is within Mary's uterus. And Zacharias is singing that salvation is accomplished. All of Israel's longing for restoration and for deliverance is now being realized. I pray to have the faith of Zacharias. I pray to have the devotion to God's word that Zacharias here demonstrates. This aged priest who had seen it all, been through it all, seen years pass by. And now in his well-stricken years, all things are being fulfilled according to the timing of God. I was not thinking about this, but Pastor Nathan brought it up, so I'll read it. Galatians, I think it's chapter 4, verse 1. Verse 4, thank you. Thank you, audience. 
But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law. Why? To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And again, according to God's timing, not Mary's timing, an unmarried uh, servant girl who is likely being ridiculed for how she has been unfaithful to her betrothed, not in Zacharias' timing, who is now well-stricken in years and would have likely seen more of his friends and family see what he is now seeing. According to God's timing, the fullness of his wisdom. And my friends, we have the same longing. We take up the position like Zacharias, yes, in this moment, knowing that the second advent of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is still yet in the future. And that promise of deliverance from our enemies has still yet to be realized. And we, this morning, we can sing, can you sing? That our hope rests on this one. Hope rests on the promise of Christ alone. The promise of his second coming. The promise of that day that we can read about all in the scriptures. When he's going to sweep up his bride. Christ, the bride of Christ, the church of which we are a part of. And we will be with him eternally. It's a blessed promise. Can we look to it in the same faith that Zechariah looked towards this first advent? We are seemingly no closer than before. (laughs) We can feel and and see signs, quote unquote, signs of the the Lord's coming. If you looked at the last two years, you would have thought it was tomorrow or yesterday. (laughs) Depending on which news site you read, they probably convinced you that it was. Is your faith pointed and directed toward the dawn? The light of heaven. Who says that all things will happen in the fullness of God's time. My friends, may your faith be built up this morning to rest in this tender mercy of God who does all things well according to his timing. May your faith be bound up in that blessed truth. Let us pray.